On today's episode, you're going to find out about what it takes to guide an audience to know, like, and trust your brand in the Facebook advertising ecosystem using the brand-driven performance marketing methodology coined by Deepesh Mandalia. Stay tuned to this episode as you do not want to miss this one. Retail and e-commerce have witnessed an unprecedented transformation in the last decade. The widespread adoption of mobile technology, social media, as well as the lowered cost of cloud-based technology have not only eroded the barriers to entry in retail, but it's also led to the rapid rise and dominance of digital native product brands that sell directly to their customers. On this podcast, you'll get the scoop on customer acquisition and retention strategies employed by high-growth digital native product brands. Not being afraid to spend because you know that customer is going to pay it back uh, three or four-fold. That's when you start to unlock channels in the way that they were meant to be used. Listen to interviews with experts at the forefront of technology and innovation in digital retail. Three years ago, they wouldn't have come to us because, yeah, the macro trend of cloud, Wi-Fi, broadband availability, that was a real real problem. Hear first-hand stories from founders of innovative direct-to-consumer brands. Although I was thinking about the competition, I was more thinking about, like, how do I just build a freaking successful business? We focus on driving as much traffic as possible, converting that traffic, uh, and then dumping money back into driving more traffic. These insights will help you consistently 2x growth in specific areas of your direct-to-consumer brand. This is the 2x e-commerce podcast, hosted by Kunle Campbell. Hi, guys. It's Kunle, and welcome to today's episode, the interview you're about to listen to is an interview I had with Depesh Mandalia. Now, if you don't know who Depesh Mandalia is, he is arguably the UK's number one Facebook ads trainer and expert, you know, um, in the UK and one of the top in the world. Now, if this is the third time he's been on the show, the the very first time he came on the show was um, back in 2015 at the early days of this episode. And at the time, he was a performance marketer in-house for a brand called Lost My Name. I think they're now rebranded as Wonderbury, Wonderbury or something like that. They were a personalized book. And Deepesh, along with the team of like, you know, graphic designers and marketers, copywriters, was able to figure out the hidden potential um, behind Facebook advertising at the time. Uh, he was one of the early, um, you know, um, Facebook ad experts that Facebook recognized in the UK flew out to the United States just due to the results we were able to, to, to Ghana. At the time we brought him in, um, these guys were over 10 figures and he went on to, to take them well over $25 million at the time. And then after his stint there, he decided to become a consultant essentially. Um, and um, as a consultant, he, he, he matured over to becoming an agency. And um, right now, he, he does two things, essentially. He, um, he, he runs a Facebook group, um, not only running that Facebook group, he, he, he has a training um, program, more about that. It's called the BPM Method. And he also has an agency for um, you know, brands that can work directly with him. He works on various niches, which is um, which are like um, lead generation, 
e-commerce and online courses essentially those are like the three major pillars um he offers consulting for anyway um he knows his stuff the second time i brought him in was last year where he was talking about the the, the you know he was talking about um q4 you know how to to rev it up that episode was the most popular i think episode for last year one of the most popular episodes on this podcast last year i'm bringing him on today to talk about the new and improved BPM method. So he, um, he, he managed to get a lot of feedback, user feedback from people who joined the course. And he has um, essentially refined it. He's tripled, doubled or tripled the content in it. And um, he has also catered for various, um, you know, um, various other sort of scenarios. At the time, it was very e-commerce focused. He's expanded the, the content. And I think um, the last time I, I, I learned, he, he mentioned, he said it, it has a, a score, um, a customer feedback score of, um, of about seven, which is really, you know, really, really, really good. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a brilliant episode. We, we spoke for over an hour and a half in this episode and we were just talking, you know, um, he was just shedding a lot about why now is the time to really focus on a brand oriented narrative, you know, um, what, yeah, in, in your, in, in, in all of your, your Facebook advertising where you, um, you have to know, like, and trust. You have to build all that, um, knowledge at the top of the funnel, um, build likability and trustability, you know, at the bottom of the funnel in order for people to purchase from you and why, you know, um, all of the audiences you're, you're targeting should be very brand oriented. We not only talk about brand, we talk about how he structures his campaigns because he's also the author of um, a book called the CBO Cookbook. And, and that's done terrifically well. It's like a $99 type, um, you know, book, but um, it's done terrifically well because um, he was able to, you know, figure out quite early on how to, you know, um, how to work with Facebook's, um, Facebook's, you know, CBO, which is the campaign budget optimized, you know, um, setup essentially. So, so in, in essence, this is full of juice. Um, th this is really, really, really good stuff. Um, and he's given everybody who listens to this episode, 25% off the BPM method. So typically the BPM method course is about $2,000. And if you're listening to this episode um, on, on the podcast, check out the show notes. There is a link, a very specific link for this podcast where it's $1,600 from $2,000, so wiping out 25% off essentially. Also, um, if you're on the YouTube channel, if you're watching this on YouTube, you know, just check the description. There's a link to the discount is given, you know, um, listeners in this podcast. Listen to our conversation first before you make any decisions, essentially, and you'd understand why um, why this is the, you know, ish if you are looking to learn, um, you know, properly about, um, you know, Facebook, you know, advertising. And this is like high level training to, for you, for your team um, to, to, to really smash it, um, for the rest of the, the year, this 2020. So, um, I would, you know, get the ball rolling. Um, remember our sponsors, we've got, um, 
Actually, we've got three sponsors now. Um, we've got the best backup solution providers essentially in um, in Shopify and big commerce. They're called Rewind. They're giving 2x e-commerce listeners um, 30 days trial for each of the trials when you mention 2x e-commerce. We've got the best email marketing software for direct-to-consumer businesses sponsoring us. And we recently just got Bolt, Bolt Checkout. So if you're not running Shopify, if you're running, um, you know, um, big commerce, many other e-commerce platforms, and you really want to rev up your bottom of funnel checkout process, you have to check out Bolt Checkout. They're a sponsor to this podcast. And um, I think if you go to bolt.com forward slash 2x, you, 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 you get an offer there that they'll, they'll reach out to you and do you a really, really good deal. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to let the um this real role and um enjoy this episode grab your notes this is going to be a, a big note taking one and um see you see you see you at the end of the show peace let's take a quick break to talk about screwing up Accidents happen. Perhaps you installed an app that messed up your theme or a CSV import completely messed up your product catalog. Common myth, cloud-based e-commerce platforms like Shopify and BigCommerce have automatic backup solutions you can use when something goes wrong with your store. This is simply untrue. They don't. Myth busted. So what do you do? You use Rewind. Rewind will protect Shopify and BigCommerce stores with automatic backups. Rewind should be the first app you install to protect your store against human error, misbehaving apps, or collaborators gone bad. It's like having your very own magic undo button. Rewind is trusted by over 25,000 businesses from side hustles to the biggest retail brands you can think of. Gymshark, Movement Watches, and Pampers all use Rewind for automatic backups. So here's the deal for 2Xs. If you head over to rewind.io, which is R-E-W-I-N-D.io, install Rewind, you'll get to use it for free for seven days. If you reach out to the Rewind team and mention the 2X e-commerce podcast, that extend your seven-day trial for a full month for free. Enjoy peace of mind with Rewind Backups. Remember to head over to Rewind.io and don't forget to mention the 2X e-commerce podcast for a full month trial. The 2X e-commerce podcast is brought to you by Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business by taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands like Brooklyn, None, and Chubby's. Build your customer list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash 2x to create your free account. That is K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash 2x. Hi guys, welcome, welcome, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show. And this is the podcast dedicated to rapid growth in online retail. Um, I don't think I've been more excited for about an episode because this is a part two, right? And you know, anytime I bring a guest the second time, that guest is truly special. 
Now, if you rewind back to the 18th of July, yes, I do have records for this. 18th of July, 2018, we published own e-commerce for Q4 with Facebook advertising with Depeche Mandalia. Depeche is back here um, to talk about, now this is May, so we're, we're looking at almost two years on. A lot has changed in the world of Facebook advertising and he's here to talk about everything that's changed. Now, for those of you living on the rock and don't know about Depeche, I'm going to just give you an overview now, Depeche is pretty much three things. is an entrepreneur, an investor, and a Facebook advertising chef. He'll explain what, what he means by chef later on. But um, he has been able to leverage digital advertising predominantly via Facebook um, through his agency called Zaz, that's Z-A-S-R, Digital, and has been responsible for over 100, listen, $100 million in revenue. Um, from about $20 million in spend from one platform, which is the Facebook advertising platform. He's an advisor to Facebook and he's just an all, all out ninja when it comes to, to Facebook. I mentioned every time I get someone on here um, to talk about Facebook, his name somehow crips you know, into the conversation because of the amount of values added to this space in general. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to waste too much. I'm just going to introduce Dipesh. Welcome to the show, Dipesh. Thank you. Uh, privileged to be back. And uh, for the record, it's the third time we're actually speaking, because if you recall, I think in 2015, we actually had a podcast. Yes, well. yes, yes, yes. So the third time. So you're, you're a record setter, because I've never had anybody <laughs> third time. <laughs> but it's, it's so crazy, because um, the evolution, you know, your evolution is just is amazing. I was on your site, Dipesh, um, your personal site. Um, let me get back on there. And I love the way you you talked about the fact that, you know, you had your formative years, career years, transformational years, Facebook years, and then agency years. And then this, these are like the, the mission-driven years. Do, mm. do you want to sort of take us through that? Just summarize that page um, because that no one does that. And, you know, that's to give people context about the amount of time you've dedicated to to marketing and, you know, um, Facebook, uh, you know, to where you are today, essentially. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I wanted to write an About Us uh, page, which, or About Me page, which kind of reflected my journey because a lot of people will go to my personal website to say, right, who's this guy? So they'll either go to LinkedIn or to my personal website. And, you know, the fact is, from the very start, I stumbled forward. So I was a developer. I, I stumbled into project management from project management Fortunately, I stumbled into e-commerce and, and without these uh, unintentional kind of crossroads, I wouldn't be here. So I would have still been maybe in development, who knows. But in 2005, when I was a project manager and I saw this role to be a website project manager, I thought that's right up my road because I know websites, I know project management. The role was actually to be the, for what, what is now called the conversion rate expert. So to manage the website and everything within it, but to really drive sales. And back in 2005, conversion rate optimization or CRO or anything like that, it wasn't really a thing. So my role was seen as someone who's technical, who could look after the analytics, who could create landing pages, who could um, you know run focused groups and stuff like that. And then from that point, that helped me stumble into SEO because 
managing a website also meant that I need to make, make sure it was also SEO friendly. And then from there was my journey into marketing. And that kind of helped me to form everything I have now by literally just keep stumbling forward. Just these opportunities kept opening up. So, you know, from SEO, I fell into paid search. And then from mm-hmm. paid search, I fell into affiliate marketing. And it just all kind of blossomed like that. It's a completely unintentional path. There was no way I could foresee that I would be into e-commerce and online sales and things like that. And then in 2009, um, I actually lost my job. It was recession in the UK and global, in fact. And then from that, I stumbled into running my own affiliate uh, offers. And actually around two, uh, 2012, after we'd been uh, quite successful, we lost our organic traffic. So Google made a big change in 2012. And from there, I stumbled into Facebook ads. And, it, and you know, I look at some of these things over the years, and I think, I think when I wrote that, it was a chance for me to actually reflect back on these stages of my life from a kind of work or kind of uh, personal development perspective of how these things these stumbling blocks actually created everything I have right now. So without failing with my affiliate marketing business that was growing, but we lost our traffic, I would not have looked for a paid traffic source to try and pick up those sales faster. I wouldn't have entered Facebook ads. And, and without doing that, you know, look at the um, lost my name case study. That wouldn't have happened. Like, who knows? Maybe that company wouldn't have grown. Like, it's just, I find it fascinating to think that looking at lost my name, for example, all those stumbling blocks I had before, what if I didn't have them? What if one block was missing? What if I never joined Lost My Name at the stage of them being in um, Old Street with 10 freelancers all kind of hacking this thing together to becoming what it was? And then from there, everything else fell in place. So the amazing success at Lost My Name got the attention of Facebook. I got flown out to Menlo Park. I got involved with panels and talking and things like that. And then it was a chance conversation with um, uh, someone quite senior. And he was like, you're doing a good job of working with one company at a time with Facebook ads. We need more people like you in the UK that understand Facebook, but can work with many people. Have you not considered doing an agency? Mm. Never in my mind would I have ever thought of running an agency because it just didn't appeal to me. It wasn't my thing. I, I really enjoyed being hands-on working on projects, but I, I, I did it anyway. And you know, with Facebook backing, we started SM Commerce with a goal of replicating that one-to-one uh, success with many companies. And, and that, that then grew into um, a, a kind of, a, I guess, a sought-after company. We're a small business. We're not a huge, huge agency, and, and we've kept it that way intentionally. But from that, creating the kind of processes around how to do media buying and how to implement our strategies, we then started to write the SOPs and the, the guides and everything like that. And then from there in 2018, it became an internal training course. And then I decided to publish that externally. And that became a whole new thing, which was from there came my community, speaking events, and and all this whole new world of uh, essentially working in the info product space. So I'm selling training, starting to do physical masterminds or in-person masterminds, coaching and everything else beyond that. Mm -hmm. But like, if I look back at 2017, when we started the agency, again, I would never have seen myself as a public figure. I'm happy working behind the desk, behind the scenes, as I had done right prior to that. You know, I've worked with um, the likes of Seedcamp and Techstars in London, working with startups, and I've done all of that behind the scenes, helping companies, consulting for companies. But I enjoyed the kind of privacy and the, and the kind of closed nature of that. If, if someone had said to me at that point, you should go and become a global thought leader on XYZ, Facebook or whatever it is, I would have said that's not my thing because I'm quite shy, I'm quite reserved. It's not really something I'm interested in. 
But these things stumbled into becoming something. And in fact, in 2018, when I created the training calls, around kind of towards the end of summer, I I kind of lost interest in it. So I was like, Mm -hmm. I've done it for six months with uh, driven sales. It just feels like a hollow experience because you create this online program and then people are buying it and yes, sales come through. But I, I, I want to, I want, I enjoy the transformation. So when you're working on an e-com store, for example, and you see it go from, um, you know, like lost my name, 800 K to 26 and a half million dollars. It's, it's so adrenaline pumping. I really, really enjoy that. Mm. When I was selling digital courses, yes, I can make money out of it, but I wasn't really enjoying anything else beyond that. So I decided to park it. Then one guy reached out and, and just coincidentally around kind of September, 2018, and he was like, he messaged me on messenger. And he, was, he said something like, um, if your course wasn't around when it was, and he joined as one of the early uh, members, my business wouldn't be here right now. And I'd have to go and find a nine to five. Mm-hmm. And, and so, suddenly something switched. And I thought, this, I'm not just selling courses online. I'm actually in a position where I can change people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, and that changed everything for me. It was all of a sudden like working with companies at the agency, we can do that because we're managing their ad accounts. We're helping them and things like that. And we can see significant growth in their businesses but now students were reaching out to me and saying, your course is transforming our business. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of created a new path, which was, I want to do that. I want to create these transformations. And that's kind of what led into everything we've got right now. That's incredible. That, that, that's incredible. For, for um, those of you that don't know the, the Lots My Name um, story, Deepesh came back in, I think it was 2015, um, and you were pretty much leading marketing out in lost my name. They were like a personalized book, um, you know, the personalized book product. And um, you used Facebook to, to take them from zero to $26 million in, in revenue in what, nine months? Was it? Was um, so when I joined, they were already, they're already making money, but prim- uh, primarily through affiliates. So for example, um, at the time, their biggest income was through uh, not on the high street. So they were, they were selling through resellers. They knew they had a good product, but they couldn't sell it directly. So they tried Facebook ads, paid search, um, lots of different platforms. So by the time I joined, I think they'd done maybe six to 800K um, or, or somewhere. No, they'd done a few hundred K. In the first year, we took them to um, 8 million. So from 800K to 8 million in 2014. And then in 2015, up from 8 million to 26 and a half million. So in 18 months, We'd gone from 800K to 26.5 million. And, you know, one, one thing I, I, I want listeners to understand is you cannot do that with just Facebook ads alone. Like this is just something really important to realize is although Facebook drove the majority of their traffic and sales and awareness and everything alongside that, we had to grow the tech team, the customer service team. We had a, a dedicated conversion rate optimization team, developers, designers, and there's a whole ecosystem that grows alongside this to the extent that when I joined that company, we, we were about 10 people just um, jamming it out in a hired space in Old Street to when I left, there were over 100 people in a dedicated space that Lost My Name not only owned, but they'd fully internally designed into exactly what they wanted it to be. We had raise, uh, VC raising as well from Google Ventures and um, A16, and if uh, anyone knows them, and then different kind of investors coming in to help take those, um, take, take the product worldwide, essentially. Incredible. Incredible. Okay. So, um, 
I love the impact. So one, one thing I have to just say is you're a genius at storytelling. Um, and you moving from working behind the scenes to becoming a public figure has not just necessarily, this, this is a personal observation, so it's anecdotal, has not only been your skill set, but the ability to inspire people with the stories you tell. You've been able to merge the emotive. And, and this, if anybody's listening to it to this point, you'd notice how genuine and how emotive Deepesh has been and you know the his his results speak for themselves so he, he you, you managed to merge it and and that's just skyrocketed you you know through the ecosystem and with the attention as well as your results um so coming down to that with um with what i just said um first of all do you agree or um am i just making stuff up um yeah i i think um I've learned that. I think I've learned through advertising, through marketing, that storytelling is where it's at. No matter what kind of product you're selling, it's all about getting across the feeling. So like when I talk about marketing, for example, Mm -hmm. people want to feel something. It doesn't matter if you're selling a $20 product or $2,000. They don't feel something. They're less likely to interact, whether it's clicking the ad or buying or buying again or anything like that. So people buy on emotions. And, and I've, I, I, since a kid, I used to love writing stories, just kind of um, fictional and things like that. And I, and I was fascinated by the world of fiction and the way you could create, create a picture in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something which through my marketing, I've learned to develop and hone over the last 10, 15 years, especially in copywriting as well. So I first started kind of learning copywriting back with um, like copy blogger and the guys like 10 years ago, also learning from the likes of Ogilvy and trying to understand how to convince and convert. Then as over the last two years, I became more public. I've had to learn how to do that um, verbally as well, because I would say my biggest strength is in writing. I love writing. If, if there's one um, job I could do, I just love to be a, a writer. So copywriter, sales writer, all that kind of stuff. I really, really enjoy that. Some people, for example, are great um, telling oral stories and narration and things like that. And, and they, they enjoy their kind of building up the, of the atmosphere. Okay. Me being a kind of quiet, shy, reserved type, it just wasn't my thing. Now, in 2018, I was actually invited to Affiliate World Asia to speak on stage, 500,000 affiliate marketers or whatever it was. That for me is not my, my, my safe space. That's way outside of my zone of genius. But then I said at the time, right, if I'm going to take this public thing seriously, I'm going to train up on it. And I hired a coach to help me get better at speaking, essentially storytelling, and be able to deliver it from stage. And, you know, she was a TEDx coach as well. And I went through an intensive program over six weeks that got me in the position and the shape to go out onto that stage and absolutely nail it. And actually at that talk, I did two talks a few days apart. The first talk, I was voted the third best speaker of, I think, 15. And the second talk, joint best. Now, if you rewind to 2016, I did a talk in Edinburgh and I was voted the worst speaker. And, and that's a transformation over a period of two, two years by consciously recognizing my, my, um, my, my gaps in what I need to work on, hiring a really good coach and intensively working on it. And the thing is that you can apply that to anything. If you're media buying on Facebook, if you're learning to fly an airplane, you want to become a NASA scientist or whatever it is, 
you put the effort in, you learn it, and you can literally become a master of any skill if you've got that um, desire to do so and you've got the time to put into it. And that's exactly what I've, I, I, I did with the speaking. And, and now I'm quite comfortable going on stage. I don't really care how many people there are, if it's um, 100 people, 10 people, or 1,000. I've learned the techniques to deliver that. I'm like, for example, three years ago, I would not have dreamt on jumping on a Facebook Live and just talking. Whereas mm-hmm. now, it, it's a lot more natural for me because I'm so much more confident. I've been through the training, I've developed it, and therefore my approach is a lot more natural than it was ever before. Incredible, incredible. Would you advise people to read? Fiction books, you know, with the hustle culture and entrepreneurship, it's all about, you know, what nonfiction books are you reading? What self-development oh. books are you reading? What would you, given the fact that you enjoy nonfiction and, you know, storytelling is a big factor in, in nonfiction, what, what's your suggestion there to, to entrepreneurs? I, I tell you what, it's not the entrepreneurs, but it's their children. Because what I find is as a child, if you don't harness your creativity, it, it either disappears or it just gets um, um, compressed. And I think that's True. the responsibility of a parent. Yeah. I, like, I have it right now. My kids want to watch TV all day. They want to play computer games. But the creativity isn't there because the, the, the screen is doing all the hard work for them. Mm. But, like, for example, my eldest son, um, he was really into Tolkien. He went through the whole Lord of the Rings series. He read, I think, all three books or whatever it is, within like two days. And he was just so enthralled by it. I had the same feeling when I went through, went and read the Lord of the Ring books many, many years ago, many decades ago, I went through the same thing because I just wanted to read every page and I could see these dragons and monsters and everything in my Mm -hmm. mind. That as an adult, if you've not done that before, it's hard to get back. So if you're an entrepreneur, for example, and you want to get that creativity going, it's really hard. But as a child, children are naturally creative. They want to play they want to create they want to explore and all that kind of stuff and i think Mm -hmm. that's where it comes from so i think the responsibility for the entrepreneur is obviously if you can do it be a bit more creative but it starts in childhood and really Mm -hmm. starts between the uh, age of like two and ten of really getting them into the mindset of thinking for themselves Mm -hmm. problem solving but seeing opportunity and creativity and things like that and i think that helped as well and, you know, going back to my childhood, for example, uh, we were quite poor, so we didn't have all the gadgets and games and stuff. So we'd have to be quite creative in uh, coming up with games. And, um, you know, I would read. I, I, we couldn't go cinema, so I would just read all the time. And so mm-hmm. my, my creativity, I think, developed in a different way to others that had all the latest computer games that would always go to the movies and things like that. Um, and I think that's something which it has to evolve over time and it's harder as you kind of become an adult to try and unlock that creativity again. It's super interesting. My son, you know, sort of channels his love for cartoons to, to animation and we as parents just have to facilitate that, um, that, that flair and um, passion to, to, to see how, you know, how far it can blossom. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Very, very, very interesting. Thank you for that. Okay. Let's talk about, brand-driven performance marketing, which is your BPM method. Now, back in 2018, you had the, the course, you, you said there were like, um, you know, SOPs for the agency, which were pretty, pretty much repurposed as into a course. Now, what I love about what you're doing is the fact that if like, you know, I'm a startup entrepreneur and I wanted to work with Zaz and 
I just didn't have the resources as yet to scale my Facebook ad because I, I can't afford you. You still have these courses, the BPM yeah. course in particular, to, to help me. It's a 2K course, it's $2,000, which is about 1,500 pounds that will pretty much teach me how you do it as an agency. Yeah. Not only that, if I can't afford like $2,000, you have the CBO cookbook, which I think you released last year. That's right. Um, I have had five, up to five private messages as in from people saying, have I checked out Depeche's, you know, cookbook book, either reviews or, or my opinion about, about the book. So it's certainly reached thousands. You sold thousands of That's that right. book, you know, um, amazingly. It's a low ticket, but I think it's under $200. Um, That's right. Not very sure. So you're, you're catering to every single step every single step in the mass market. It's, it's almost like with your courses, um, if I'm not at the stage where I'm spending, what's the threshold for spending 30K a month? So in order for you to get like a Facebook ad rep or you know, yeah. account manager, you need to spend about you know $1,000 a month, a day. So if I've not really reached that stage where I'm spending with Facebook and I don't have an account rep, your material just replaces that Facebook rep. Now, we released BPM back in 2018. Now we're in 2020. Um, a lot has changed. I was on the landing page. I have I had access to the to BPM one. Mm. What, what are the changes? What has changed? Um, what What are the significant things that have changed from Facebook of 2018 to 2020? Absolutely. So just before that, I'll touch on the point about the um, kind of agency versus other material. And actually what I realized is, and we we went through this late last year to realize that we have this kind of invisible ladder that we didn't even know we had. So even below that $200 course, I have my community. There's like 13,000, 14,000 people in there. And And that's organically just developed where I'm training people up to become better with their media buying and understanding of Facebook that is actually the bridge between me and Facebook. So I get a lot of info and insights from Facebook. I share it all there. So, uh, you know, a lot of people want us to know what Facebook are doing, what the latest insights are, et cetera. So that's what the community is about. And then like the cookbook just came about because Facebook developed a new product and we wanted to make sure that we gave all of our learnings to people. And then we've got the training program and the agency stuff. And then we realized there's actually a ladder here. And not only is, is the ladder there, people are consciously moving through that. Um, and, and because of that, we took the training program that I developed in 2018 and I literally tore it apart and started again because, like I said, we went from here are our agency SOPs, let's turn that into a course. And back in 2018, we called it uh, the Facebook Ads Playbook because it was a, essentially my agency's playbook. In 2019, we started to develop it and put some kind of more theming around it to call it the BPM method to, to get people to understand that this isn't just performance marketing. It's the core of how to become a great brand marketer and apply that to performance marketing. So that's what it's all about. But late last year, I reviewed the whole program and I said, how do I get it to a point that if I was to start this from scratch, not here's my agency's SOPs, maybe you'd like it. It's I want you to have success from this. What does that look like? I hired a program director who actually worked with ClickFunnels and Russell Bronson, who's helped Russell to come up with the programs and kind of things that he's got. And we, we kind of looked at it and she gave me her feedback of kind of reviewing what's good and what's bad about the current program, looking at all the student feedback, the wins, the challenges. And we actually created a new plan for that. 
um, to, to execute right now. And, and that's exactly what the program is right now. So, um, for example, when you have a look at it, you'll, you'll, you'll see that I, I think probably 90 to 95% of the material is actually rewritten. So it's taking, um, a, taking the approach of originally it was based on me writing it for my media buyers to now me writing it for students. And although it might not sound like a big change, it is because now there's a lot of assumptions that my media buyers have access to me, my team, and we have lots of documentation and things like that. I've actually now included that in the new program. So there's lots of more downloads and worksheets and things like that, which we already had in the agency. But, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you start to get that feedback. So with the original program, I didn't know how people would react. I didn't know if anyone would would be interested, what would happen, etc. We took all of that, revamped it, and create a new structure. So actually, for example, I had uh, feedback from someone um, on the weekend that saw the launch and he said um, something like, you know, it's genius to include um, modules on funnel and conversion rate optimization, AOV and LTV. And, and this is my point that Facebook media buying isn't about how to be, you know, a ninja at like lookalikes and interests and segmenting your audiences and hacking your manual bid and stuff like that. It's about being clever about your marketing. So, for example, we took a client on. They were selling, um, they were selling, uh, selling LED lights. Those LED lights retail for like $40, $50. But we were in a competitive niche. There were lots of many other people selling LED lights as well. We were struggling to get um, above 100% ROAS. So $40 to $50 uh, ticket value, $40, $50 CPA. Now, you can take two routes as a media buyer. Route number one is... I want to get my cost down. So then you start optimizing your conversion rate and your CPMs and CTRs and stuff like that. We went the other way, which is get the AOV up. And we actually got the AOV up to $80 to $90 and maintained the CPA where it was. Now, all of a sudden, considering cost of goods and stuff, we're actually a lot more profitable and we can start scaling it. And, And they're the kind of decision points that I think a lot of media buyers forget or miss out on or are not aware of. That It's not just about getting your cost up. It's about getting your average order value up, getting your lifetime value up. So this is a combination of business optimization, you know, conversion rate optimization, business optimization and media buying. Where, you know, um, if you have constraints in the media buying uh, side, you you look at other ways to make media buying work for you, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, this this comes through um, being on many different sides of the business and wearing many hats apart from a media buyer. So I've been in the position of marketing director where I've been working across many channels and budgets and big teams to being a media buyer and everything in between that. So that when I'm looking at things, I'm looking at it from a holistic point of view, which is what's best for my business, not what's best for my Facebook advertising, what's best for the business, which is not always... Uh, the highest ROAS you can get on the first sale. Okay. And, you know, it's that, that's something where uh, people share a lot of screen porn in groups and they're like 50,000% ROAS or, um, you know, I scale to 1 million in 30 days and stuff like that. I, I've sp- spoken to a lot of e-com dropshippers, print-on-demand uh, business owners and stuff like that. They're doing 100K a month. And, and you know, you, people would say, I'd love to also be doing 100K a month. What's the profitability and they're like, we're not profitable. We're struggling. I don't know what to do. I take many coaching calls and, you know, people are finding and trying to find out how do I make this thing profitable? Mm-hmm. I have a seven figure a year business, but my take home is, you know, 5k a month, like 5k a month is a job. 
that's not on that's not a thriving not a business where you can go <laughs> and take holidays and stuff like that it's you can a get a job that gives you 5k a month you don't need exactly. a seven figure business to do that so mm-hmm. like that that's i think the big gap in the industry where people are not understanding that it's not the vanity metrics that are going to give you the life you want it's what's happening below that and a lot of the guys who are doing it at that level are keeping quiet. They're just, you know, oh, they're, 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 they're washing it up. Um, the question I had was in regards to this problem with attribution. Um, and, you know, when I talked about like business optimization bits of things, I, I'm, I'm also talking about like a profitable CPA, you know, from a marketing standpoint, you know, so you know, my question to you now, I always have long-winded questions, but this question is more, more around like, how do you sort of say, say you're, 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 you're advertising in multiple channels. Um, you, you're, you're experimenting on TikTok. You're working on, you know, um, AdWords. You're working on um, Snapchat, for instance, on YouTube ads and Facebook. And you see Facebook is taking maybe 60% or 70% of ad spend. And then the rest of it is distributed to one way shop, shape of the form or, or form the other. How do you sort of, determine what portions to allocate to each channel being, you know, profitable, you know, um, do, do you ask each expert that's managing those other platforms or would you make that decision holistically if you were, you know, your own, if you're running your own e-commerce brand or if um, you're, you're um, a marketing manager at an e-commerce brand, it's really resource allocation. And my question is all about from a Absolutely. spend standpoint. Absolutely. So if I give you the example, it lost my name. So obviously we, we grew um, business significantly through Facebook ads, but like any responsible business owner, we're looking at um, diversifying our traffic sources. So we picked up Google ads, we were doing affiliate marketing partnerships, um, and, and then we introduced TV and a few other bits like PR as well. When it came to experimenting with channels, what I convinced the owners to do is to give us budget to experiment Without an expectation of return. So, for example, my question was, how much can we spend a month where we can just experiment? And if we make losses, we make losses, but it's focused on learnings. So when we created a separated budget just for testing, so we would test that on Pinterest, we'd test that on, um, I think we're doing Twitter ads and a few other things at the time with a person in the team who was dedicated to just experimenting. Mm-hmm. They had no ROAS goals. They had no CPA goals. It was literally just maximize your outcome, um, your um, insights from it. Mm-hmm. From that, um, and bear in mind, this is 2015. We were one of the beta users of Pinterest ads. We got Pinterest ads up to about uh, a thousand, um, no, three to 4,000 pounds a day spend. This is 2015. Okay. And I think the ROAS was like 1.5 or something. So compared to Facebook, which was like three ROAS, it wasn't as good. However, what we saw was that that Pinterest traffic was um, contributing in other parts of the business as well. So retargeting for Facebook and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that was after probably about four to six weeks of testing with Pinterest to figure out what it was. And bear in mind back then, there's no documentation or any kind of expertise out there on Pinterest. So we were learning it ourselves and mm-hmm. working with a Pinterest rep at the time. And, and that's where I think, depending on where your scale is, and by this point, we're doing uh, eight figures. We, we were using a budget and resource to just test and play. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way that in 2014, I found profitability with Facebook at Lost My Name is I was given budget, 5K 
I think it was actually 5K a month. Like, that's not a lot. Um, but we were given that budget to play with paid channels. And it's through that that I found profitability with Facebook. Mm. Had, had I gone into that and the owners had said, here's 5K a month and here's your minimum ROAS target, I would have made some very different decisions because I wouldn't have the flexibility to test yeah. and learn and, and lose and things like that. Yeah. And, and that's the hardest thing as an agency owner to work with clients that are not prepared to do that. I'll give you an example. I run my own e-com stores for testing purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, I give my team a budget and I say, here's your test budget. Go and test the different niches out. If you find a winning product, then fine, we'll, we'll go and scale that out. But here's your test budget. Whatever it is, I don't expect a return from that, but it's your budget, it's your experimentation um, to, to see if we can find new opportunities. We actually ran a test last week, which was on a jewelry item. Now, we'd seen some traction from it, but we weren't getting a positive ROAS. Initially, um, you know, the conversation was the same thing. Should we get the AOV up? But then I said, why don't we actually price test it? So this is a $50 jewelry piece. We price tested it $30, $40, and $50 because I wanted to see what the difference was on conversion rate and therefore return on ad spend. Did, did you and, price test it with like a CRO tool? or? Um... No, we used Facebook split test and we created three okay. separate products on Shopify. Okay. Um, and what we did was we ran our best audience and just our best creative. So we wanted to fix as many variables as possible, mm-hmm. ran it for a week with, I can't remember what the budget, three dollars $400 or whatever it was. And what came out was really fascinating because the winning product based on um, ROAS was the mid-range one. So Mm. I think it was like $40. However, the conversion rate was highest on the $30 product. Mm. And and what we're now going to start testing with is, okay, if conversion rate is higher on the cheaper products, and obviously ROAS is lower because the order value is um, such, what happens if we start adding upsells into that journey? So with that higher conversion rate will the upsells actually generate a more positive rise? And, and they're the kind of steps that we take th- um, to, to understand how to enhance Facebook media buying. So as an agency, for example, everything we apply on our accounts is based on what we've done ourselves. And I think that helps us to differentiate from other agencies that are tired because you can't do that with your client's spend because it's harder to convince a client to say, we want to do this testing and you know give us 500 or or $1,000. We want to just... Uh, burn it and see what happens kind of thing, essentially. But when it's my own money, then I can make that call and say, I'm happy to put that budget aside. Let's just run this experiment and see what happens. Um, I think it was late 2018, in fact, we uh, did a test. Was it 20? Yeah, I think it was 2018. We did a test to actually test different CPMs on different pixel events and things like that. That then became a core part of our graduation testing process in the BPM method. Mm-hmm. It was just something that just came to me of, let's just run this and see if that impacts the pixel optimization and does that make an impact on our testing and how does that flow into our optimization and scaling? It was just an idea. We went, went and run it. It actually worked. And that now has become a core part of our um, work on testing and optimization. We wouldn't so- have been able to do that on a client account. So it's, I, I think as... It doesn't matter if you're an e-commerce owner, you're an affiliate marketer, you're an agency owner, freelancer. If you're not running your own ad accounts in whatever niche you're in, outside of your core. So even if you're an e-com store owner and you're selling um, dog, dog-related memorabilia or whatever it is, you should always be experimenting on the side. Always have a budget mm-hmm. where you're just going a bit left field and thinking differently about how you can enhance conversion rate, AOV, LTV, because often without the shackles of trying to get good CPA and ROAS, you'll find yourself experimenting 
uh, with far more freedom and potentially create better results as well. Incredible. So, so this sounds to me like a, a mindset thing, like a, a lean mindset where you fail fast, you learn, you learn quickly, um, pick it up, take, I mean, your point about um, how they give you a test budget for Facebook and how you discovered it with no constraints is, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. Very, very, very interesting. It's a massive, massive takeaway. Okay. Um, Let's talk about, um, you know, um, campaign structure, shall we say? Um, has, has anything changed in 2018, you know, where, where you're talking about cold, you know, warm, hot? You, what, has anything changed so far um, in the past two years in, in, in Facebook and in, in your campaign structure? So how you, you have, uh, yeah. yeah. So um, that's the same campaign structure I've used since 2015. And uh, I remember I was in Menlo Park and Facebook were asking, like, because um, part of going out to Menlo Park was presenting our success for Lost My Name. Yeah. Part of it was meeting with product engineers and uh, product managers to talk about the, the things we were doing and what we were seeing working and getting their feedback. And I talked about our funnel and the fact that we have um, different parts of the funnel and we segment and we retarget and we funnel people through different ads and messages at that time it wasn't really the normal thing to do and even the facebook reps at the time didn't really have so much material or knowledge on that i'd like to cl uh, claim and uh, say that i was the one that suggested that facebook should implement this and since 2015 onwards now facebook do have a similar structure where they're talking about top of funnel middle and bottom which everyone mm -hmm. talks about but we were doing it way back before it was uh, kind of more well known so that remains the same. It's been the same since 2015 that we've been applying it. 2014, we were all over the place. We had multiple campaigns and ads and ad sets, and it was really unstructured yeah. until it started to, certain things started to click. So that part of it is still relevant because you want to target the right person at the right time with the right ad. That's, mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to with Facebook yeah. advertising. And that is how the algorithm works. That's how the auction algorithm works is Facebook is trying to also do the same thing. If you're browsing your newsfeed, Facebook knows so much about you. For example, it knows on average what time you go and log into Facebook, WhatsApp, Messenger, and Instagram every single day, how frequently you use it, how, what time you spend on different apps, which apps you use to click ads. Like, for example, you may never click ads on Messenger. It has so much about you so that when it comes to figuring out, right, I need to target this user with an ad it will then go and find ads that will match from different advertisers. So for example, you might um, click on certain kinds of apparel or accessories or something like that. Mm -hmm. Facebook knows that already. So then this advertiser comes on board and says, I'm going to target this profile. You meet that profile. Now the question is, will I serve this ad from this advertiser to this person? Now mm -hmm. you might, for example, have already bought online. Facebook yeah. knows you're a purchaser, all those kind of things. So all these markers are already set. The goal for the advertiser is I want my ad to be shown to this person because they're likely to buy. They, they meet, meet my profile, age, gender, demographics, whatever it is. The, 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 the problem that occurs is when you're not working in sync with Facebook and trying to do the same thing, that's where you get instability and you, you, you can't scale and things like that. And what I mean by that is that funnel structure completely supports what Facebook's trying to do. So top of funnel, mid of funnel, uh, bottom of funnel, which we call cold, cold, warm, hot. We know something about you. So my middle of funnel is people that have engaged but not clicked. 
So they've engaged with my page, um, with a video, for example, or something like that. So I know they know me already or my brand or the product. Therefore, the type of ad I serve is going to be slightly different. Mm-hmm. When I'm retargeting someone that's visited my site, again, I know something about them. So all these clues and things are there so that when I'm targeting you now, I know that you've visited my cart page. Um, you know, you've added a couple of products to the cart. I want to now try and get you back based on building the right messaging for you. So what mm-hmm. is the reason you haven't checked out? If it's a low-cost ticket item, let's say it's $40, and you've gone all the way to the checkout, but you haven't purchased what is it about that journey that stopped you from transacting? That's my goal as an advertiser to tackle. So, you know, I, I, I create an avatar sheet for every um, persona that I'm trying to target. And, and it's not just about coming up with ads to entice you into my funnel. It's coming up with responses to potential barriers to bring you back. So, for example, if I've just launched an e-com store and headphones, for example, I'm selling headphones. If you don't know my brand, you're not going to know me, like me, or trust me as a brand. So you may have come through. Like, for, in, in fact, I did this journey yesterday. I saw some headphones come up in my newsfeed. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're called Neuraloop. Worth checking out. They're quite interesting. Okay. I, did, I did exactly this. I went onto their site. I'd never heard of them before. But as I started to read the messaging, I thought this is a really cool product. So, for okay. example, I would have gone onto their view content audience, but I haven't checked out. So now I expect that their retargeting ads are going to kick in. Whether they've got the right messaging right will depend on whether they've understood my potential barriers on purchasing. So, for example, I went through and I really liked the concept of the product, but I didn't, I'd never heard of the brand before. I don't know what the quality is like. I don't know what other customers they have. Now, for example, if they have a retargeting ad and they have a musician or some well-known celebrity who's wearing yeah. their uh, bands and saying, you know, this is an amazing product. The sound acoustics are so good. I'm probably going to buy it because now you've absolutely bypassed that no like trust. I trust you yeah. now because you've got this brand endorsement. Yeah. They're the things that shift the needle when it comes to Facebook advertising. Yeah. And, and it's not the duplicate your ad set 5,000 times and put a million dollar uh, bid on your manual bid. You know, I'm exaggerating. Yeah. But yeah. that's where I see so many people focusing rather than what's actually what, what's your messaging what's the funnel look like what's the landing page yeah. experience what copy do you have they're the things that make a difference so no top of funnel like mid trust bottom kind yeah, of exactly yeah. you're, you're convincing and you know the way i try and pitch it is imagine you're going out on the street go out mm-hmm. on the street and go and sell your product to someone who looks like your demographic see how well you can convert them in fact take print out your ad your cold top of funnel ad and hold it in front of you and go and speak to your prospects. I guarantee you'd never speak to a person like that. Mm. Like, um, you see some of these ads and they're like, um, uh, you know, amazing headphones, unlimited uh, availability, 50% off, um, durable, whatever, whatever. You would not speak to a person like that. When you've just walked into your showroom or you're trying to sell on the street, you try and build a rapport. You maybe say, hey, have a look at this video. It's really cool. It shows you how this product's used. They're, they're, when you start thinking in that kind of mindset, you'll look back at your ads and realize, yeah, actually, I think I could probably tweak and improve my ads. Okay. I'm going to go a bit technical here um, in terms of like your audience filtering. Um, so you have your top of funnel, which would be interest, demographic, you know, what have you. Um, how do you really whittle down mid funnel audiences so you could channel your messages, you know, quite specifically to those, um, you know, um, segments of customers or potential customers or audiences? 
Absolutely. So, for example, let's say um, we're retargeting video viewers. Mm. What kind of videos have they seen top of funnel? So you could have some very different angles in your video where one angle is talking about, it could just literally be um, uh, user-generated content around your product or people using it. Mm. Therefore, if you know that they've watched, let's say, 50% of that video, but they haven't clicked, go back and look at that first portion of your video and figure out what what have they actually taken away by that point and what have they missed? Because, mm. for example, if the payload of your video was you know, 75 80% in, that means they haven't really seen the payload. One mm. of the things that Facebook recommend, which I um, also uh, vouch for, is if you look at TV advertising, there's a peak, and then at the end of the TV ad is the pay- payload, which is like yeah. a big reveal or the product. You turn that around for Facebook ads. So the big payload and impact has to be earlier on so that within the first few seconds, someone knows whether this ad's relevant or not for them, and then you kind of build them back in. If you haven't got that through, then it's harder to remarket to them knowing that they know enough about your product and brand. So if I'm remarketing to those people, I might come up with um, something that continues that journey, or it might just be uh, testimonial ads or a bit more about the functionality or something like that. What about video durations for Top of Funnel? What, what are you seeing working really well now on Facebook? I, I would say ideally anything around kind of 30 to two minute mark, but it depends on what kind of AOV you're pushing. So for example, I'll give you an example. When I've um, been running video ads for, um, in, in fact, we did this experiment, I think it was 2019, I think early 2019. I actually ran video interviews as cold ads. So this is for the BPM method. So okay. I would interview um, people for an hour on Facebook advertising. It was just purely knowledge, knowledge, mm. knowledge, just question, question, question. I, I actually found that A, the uh, video view length was actually really quite good. So for an hour's long, I think average it was like 15 minutes. So for someone okay. to actually sit there in an ad who doesn't know you to sit and watch your ad for 15 minutes, it's an ad, right? Mm-hmm. No one sees it in, as an ad because it's a value ad. And at the end of it, we would remarket to people that watch 25%, 50%, 75%, et cetera. So, so these were not edited. Sorry for continuation. No, they these weren't were edited at all. Pure, this, okay, oh, well, raw, these, raw these video. literally interviews. videos wow. that I would okay. shoot live as well. It's not like I would studio it and edit or anything. These were okay. live videos. Um, and, and this is the thing about doing fast iterative testing. There are many mistakes we made. There's many opportunities to improve. But I, I would literally run a live interview and then I'd use the same video uh, to test different copy angles in my ads and literally just run them and see, you know, for broad audiences, 5% lookalikes or people that are interested in e-com or something like that, what the response would be. And I think to this date, they are my most profitable ad campaigns I've run. More mm. profitable than, um, you know, doing lead magnets or anything like that because I'm delivering that value straight up and it bypasses the learning curve or, or the curve of knowing me, liking me, and trusting me. Yeah. And, and that was one example. Others, we've done shorter videos and trying to, trying to prime people in, for example. That really depends on the AOV of the product you're pushing. If you're selling mm. a $20, 30 40 $50 e-com product, you don't need necessarily such an elongated funnel that's going to really try and uh, convince and convert them through. Whereas now, if you're in the $100 range, you need to maybe consider how many touch points will you need. We have a client right now, for example, where um, we are selling a $100 AOV product, 
we know based on the attribution data, whatever AOV, sorry, whichever ROAS we get on day one, by day 10 or 14, that ROAS is doubled from that first oh, okay. click. Makes sense. This is okay. a consideration path. And actually, the cost per add to cart is generally really, really low, like $5 level. Mm-hmm. But we know on average, people are adding to cart two or three times. So the unique cost per add to cart is about $20. Mm-hmm. But off the back of it, and, and this becomes a measurement and control for us that when we are running, when we're looking at the analyzing the ads on a daily basis, as long as ROAS is within like 120, 140%, we know we're on track because more sales will pull through based on the attribution. And, and that's another, another point of understanding the consumer journey that yeah. not everyone will see an ad and just buy straight away. And not everyone will go through your funnel in the way you want them to. So, so, yeah. so how often do you um, sort of adjust the, the attribution window? To- so we, we, we um, use supermetrics. We pull the data through into a Google sheet. We look mm-hmm. at one day, seven day, um, 28 day conversion windows. And we look at the data which shows us um, you know, on each of the last 30 days, what the ROAS looked like. And mm. it's a real simple and crude way, I'd say, to get an overall idea across the account of what the attribution looks like. So on some accounts, um, the, the ROAS we see on day one is pretty much as good as it will get because, you know, it's a low-cost product. People buy there and then. And therefore, when you look at that seven-day, 28-day attribution, there aren't many sales that are seen. Mm-hmm. What's your go-to platform for attribution for for reading as accurate as possible um, attribution reports? I don't have a preference because I haven't found one that's good enough to me. To me, because you know, analytics working, seems a bit skewed, and um, Facebook they're, they're all skewed. Unfortunately, all skewed, so right. I'm actually um, so Facebook have a lot of work going into the attribution program right now. So mm-hmm. I'm working with them in, in the attribution team to figure out how best to enable attribution insights. So the platform you see on Facebook, if you click into attribution, it's a bit fiddly because you need mm-hmm. to um, figure out um, how to set up a line of business. And it's a bit fiddly to set up. But the idea is that Facebook attribution works at the pixel level, not the ad account. That means that Facebook can see all the other traffic sources as well, like Google Analytics. But like Google Analytics, by default, Facebook looks at last click attribution. And what that means is if Google's looking at last click and someone came through a Facebook ad, but then they came through an organic search, then Google would attribute the sale to organic search. What Google does well is give you simple breakdowns of the attribution path. So, um, so it's, it's kind of what Google allows you to do is say, right, here's the first touch point. Here's the second touch point. Here's the third. The problem is how do you use that in your day-to-day analysis, right? One thing that I find... Um, works well is as long as your UTM tracking is done well, so UTM being like the source, the medium, campaign, et cetera, mm-hmm. then you can at, at a level understand which campaigns are driving the, the clicks that are being attributed mm-hmm. elsewhere as well. So I think as far as Google Analytics goes, it's probably the closest that I would say is where I would be looking at data reliably. I've also um, had double click in the past, which is a lot more expensive, but does a good job as well. More recently, over the last six to eight months, we've been playing around with Wicked reports. Um, It's still not there. It's still not as good as we want it to be. And and I'm hopeful that Facebook, with its attribution tool, can help give another aspect and another dimension of what's working and uh, kind of what's what needs optimizing. One of the features that I'm waiting for Facebook to release 
is being able to attribute within your ad account. So mm. imagine being able to see which top of funnel ad converted at the bottom of your funnel. Yeah. So you can see the path that they saw so this ad first, then this ad, and then that ad. An in-campaign attribution model, yeah. Exactly. That would be hugely empowering because how many times do you get a top-of-funnel ad which isn't converting, you switch it off, and then your bottom of the funnel doesn't perform? Exactly. you realize that there was a whole knock-on impact there as well. Exactly. So that's really important as well. Exactly. Let's take this quick break to hear from our sponsors. It's safe to say that most of us have been doing more shopping online lately. And if you're an e-commerce brand, that means you might be seeing more first-time customers. But once they've made the first purchase, how do you keep them coming back again? That's what Klaviyo is for. Klaviyo is the ultimate email and SMS marketing platform for e-commerce brands. It gives you the tools to build your contact list, send memorable emails, automate key messages, and more. Way, way more. That's why over 30,000 e-commerce brands like Chobby's, Brooklyn Inn, and Living Proof use Klaviyo to build a loyal following. Strong customer relationships mean more repeat customers or sales, enthusiastic word of mouth, and less dependence on third-party ads. Whether you're launching a new business or taking your brand to the next level, Klaviyo can help you get going faster. It's free to get started. So visit klaviyo.com 2x to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash 2x. Okay, let's talk, speaking of top of funnel, um, I've had some guests who've come on the show um, that have alluded to this, which is like um, work on a on a super cheap top of funnel traffic source. And that just um, pays off its dividends when you're you know doing Facebook. So it's kind of like what you're talking about yep. where it's um, the no like and trust. So rather than right. um, sorting out the no within Facebook, you sort out the no like for you, for instance, through your community um, and through your authority, through going on stage, you know, there's there's the public figure persona linking you to your one thing, which is Facebook advertising. And, and so when I see your ad, I already know you, right? Okay. So it's more or less, what is your offer? And um, can, you know, is it relevant to me, you know, at this point in time? And then I make that decision and, you know, I become a customer. Um, so what what top, free top of funnel channels would you suggest in, in the e-commerce space? There are obviously two categories of e-tailers, or I, I'm going to just define two categories of e-tailers, fully catalogued e-tailers that, you know, um, you know have multiple SKUs, 20 plus SKUs. It could go from 20 to 2000 SKUs. And then you have like um, either single products, you know, um, e-commerce funnels or, you know, uh, multi-product e-commerce funnels, not more than five that all serve either could be cross-sold or upsold to each other. A very tight niche, you know, of of products. So what would you suggest to e-tailers listening to really build that um, no bit, that top of funnel bit for for the cheap, you know, rather so to build that, massive funnel at the top absolutely so there, there are a range um one of the interesting ones i think not enough people take advantage of is finding niche communities that have email lists and subscribers or fans or whatever you want to call it that you can tap into to give an example again from lost my name 
Um, now, for the UK listeners, you you may have heard of a company called Bounty in the UK, which is, mm-hmm. if you're a parent, you absolutely have. Uh, Bounty are a kind of mother-child um, forum and website where it's all kind of tailored to um, prenatal and postnatal support for mothers. Now, through a chance conversation, we found out that they have um, email promotions where they give you sole use of the email in exchange for a, a fixed CPA on tracked sales. So what that meant, for example, is we could tap into their email database of 1.5 million mums in the UK for a fixed CPA. And, and, and at the time, um, I, I, won't, I won't show the exact CPA deals, but the CPA they asked for was half of what we were actually getting on Facebook. And you know, going into it, I was expecting them to come up with a big number and we'd like have to negotiate and stuff like that. But they came up with half of our Facebook CPA. We ran that promotion. It was hugely successful. We saw, in fact, the first time we ran it, um, it caused site instability because we were just not prepared for the spike in traffic. Mm-hmm. Ran it the second time around, like, I don't know, four weeks later, had a big impact as well. Now, it's not just about the sales that they brought in, but now we can mark them in our database based on the, the promotion code they used to know that these people specifically came from this partner. So from that, you could do many things. Number one, you can start building a, a post-purchase campaign to help nurture them and influence them. You can create a custom audience and a lookalike. So you can start testing that kind of data. Mm. And that was just one partner. There are many of these niche and kind of um, blog or community-style businesses out there that can work for a whole range of companies. So that's, mm-hmm. that's one where literally for a fixed CPA deal, it's literally free for us, right? Because every mm-hmm. time we generate a sale, we give them a commission. It's like affiliate marketing, but with a lot more control. So mm-hmm. we wouldn't like go to an affiliate network and say, we'd like to be part of your program. And that network attracts hundreds of different affiliates and they're all fighting against each other. This is partnerships. This is working with um, brands or bloggers or businesses that align with us as a brand. Exactly. That's hugely powerful. And, you know, even if you don't have uh, huge budgets for marketing, it's literally a, 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 probably one of the lowest cost ways of getting started. Now, bear in mind, by that point, we had some leverage. They knew about us. We knew them. And it was easy to have that negotiation. So, so you didn't pay any upfront fees. It was Nothing at purely all. performance Purely because they were so confident about their, their list. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we designed your product. Email. Mm. Yeah, they, exactly. The product goes a huge way. Like, you mm. can't just jump in and say, uh, I've got this dropship product from AliExpress. Can you sell it? It's not going to work. Um, so you need a product that they can believe in. We had a great-looking website. We had some PR. We, you know, we bundled that up and said, this is our business. This is our product. This is our ideal user. We believe it matches yours. Um, we created the, the email as well, which they signed off and they vetted mm. and made sure they were comfortable with. So we could control the whole experience. And those, those kind of partnerships are not only free, oh, the but partnerships are important. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, so that, that's yeah. one which I don't think enough people either yeah, are aware yeah. of or mm. tackle. The next question is going to be, how do I find these people? Just start using Google search and start mm. looking for, um, you know, your niche community, uh, sorry, your niche plus community or blog or anything like that and start doing that research and finding. Um, the other obvious one is influencers. So, you know, the, the thing about influencers is, Yes, there's Instagram, there's Pinterest, people have their own blogs, et cetera. Okay. It's finding, it's finding the, the, the real influences is a challenge. And what I mean by that is there's many influencers that have tens or hundreds of thousands of fans and followers, but they're, they're not real engaged users. And mm-hmm. you know, there are ways that you can 
try and identify that. Even a quick glance at their profile will tell you what kind of engagement they're getting. Not just the likes or the hearts, which may be taken away uh, from Instagram, but the comments and the style of comments and how engaged they are. So, for example, for one of the businesses, we ran some influencer campaigns. It was for a different brand, but we're also targeting um, mothers with children. And we actually went for um, home interior style influencers that were focused on the parents' niche. And actually, that proved really um, profitable for us because we identified follow, uh, influencers with big followers, but they their niche was parents. So although like you'd look at that and say you wouldn't go after home interior because it doesn't link with parents, but mm. these home interior influencers were all about how to get the best for your home when you've got kids. So clever designs and storage yeah. and stuff like that. So sometimes you have to think outside of the box when it comes yeah. to those influencers. That's really clever. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the yeah, thing is, these, these, were, these were what you'd call micro-influencers. So I have a preference for those rather than large ones because you can have a lot more of them. I was going to ask you that. Engaged as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you that about like your, your thoughts on, you know, big influencers or even celebs versus, you know, Absolutely. the army of micro-influencers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I've had advantages. Uh, I've had um, proposals to work with huge like global influencers with different products like you probably see, you may have seen the kim kardashian giveaways and stuff like that which you yes, can buy into a million dollars just, or something yeah I, I just don't i think that's not right because you're incentivizing people to follow you mm. it's like the old school you know win an ipad competition yeah. for your brand and like i remember i was working with a law firm and they're like uh, I've seen others doing like iPad giveaways. Should we do that? And I'm like, you can do that. You're going to attract people that want an iPad. doesn't mean they want legal services. Like exactly. you, you really have to think about what your incentive is and whether it's aligned both to your target user uh, customer and also your brand as well. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And um, I, I remember there's this caption I, I found in one of these newsletters, I think it's called um, Lean Locks. Yeah, it's a New York type um, newsletter around like um, D2C. And um, one of the adverts there is like, um, what's the difference between an influencer and a creator? And influencers just get paid and creators really care for, for, um, for, 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 for their creations. Yeah. And so it, it sticks essentially. Absolutely. And I guess the engagement trickles down. Okay. Um, yeah, some super, super. Now, your thoughts around Klaviyo. Um, I don't know whether you use Klaviyo as a, as a platform or any other email um, platform that integrates with Facebook audiences. Yep. Um, some of these have like deep um, integration with um, with Shopify and big commerce, you know, all these um, SaaS-based e-commerce platforms. And they're yeah. able to generate like super interesting segments. And with when you create those segments, you're also, also able to sort of, um, you know, sync that up with Facebook if, you know, if Facebook right. emails, you know, are you using, are you utilizing some of these to create very specific funnels or very specific messages to mid and bottom funnel um, audiences? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm not a Clavio user myself, but my team uses it with clients okay. and kind of through a setup process. And we use it for, you know, pre sale, so abandoned cart, post sale, and sequences. Um, and then obviously looking at custom audiences. Um, there's another tool that I have used, um, which is a bit more. Um, premium. I can't remember the name exactly, but it was similar to that. And we would, from that, um, I remember we were working with a client and we create some amazing um, cohorts of data from that. So people that had a certain lifetime value that bought certain categories or uh, people that had had 
come through certain channels and like, there's so many ways that you can slice and dice the data. I think that's another part where Facebook media buyers are missing out on so much gold in their backend data to be able mm-hmm. to identify. Like, here's the thing, right? when you create a lookalike audience, what Facebook is doing is it takes all of the data in your custom audience, it creates a table and what it's looking for is trends. And, and this is the explanation I got from Facebook in 2015 from the engineer at Menlo Park because I wanted to understand the lookalike data better. And he said, look, when you give us a custom audience, we have data, like it could be hundreds of thousands, could be millions of um, rows that you're giving us. Then we're looking across at um, all the attributes. So when you, let's say you upload a custom audience of a thousand people. Mm-hmm. So first of all, they're looking at the attributes across that. And then they're trying to match it up to create another look, uh, a bigger audience, which is your lookalike. So it could be creating a 2 million audience from that. Mm-hmm. But they're looking for the, the pattern. What that means is, for example, if you've been running your e-com store for a few years now, you'll know what your lifetime value is. You'll also know, for example, what um, the customers that have bought more than once, who are your loyal customers, the customers that have bought more recently, mm-hmm. uh, that have bought more, you know, certain higher ticket items. When you slice and dice that out and give that data to Facebook, Facebook is looking for what are the attributes of these people. So mm-hmm. one thing to understand is, when you, when you look at your data and you say, right, high lifetime value, certain categories, et cetera, what you're sending to Facebook is the names and identifiers of these people. What Facebook then does is does a match on its side and says, we know this about this person. So, for example, they've purchased uh, frequently, they visit Facebook frequently, they're mostly on Instagram or Facebook. There's so many things that Facebook know. And he said there's a million rows and this, he said this is no exaggeration. There are a million rows that we can pull back from. And then the machine will look for trends in that data and then give that back to you as a lookalike. Like it's Insane. unbelievably powerful. Yeah. When you've got that lookalike then, that million audience or whatever percentage uh, lookalike you've gone for are not only premium based on your custom audience, but that custom audience is exactly what's defined the people that come back. If you think about it this way, right? If you create a 1% lookalike in the UK, what is that, 400K or something like that? Yes. Me and you could create 10 1% lookalikes and the chances are the same people won't be in the same audiences because there's so many other factors that go into it. So mm-hmm. we can have 10 audiences with 400,000 people in there. There's going to be some crossover of who's in there, but my custom audience and your custom audience will dictate who is in there. So, you know, I'll give you an example. One of the most powerful um, custom audiences I created was pulling out my promoters from an NPS survey. So we sent out, uh, I think we had like two two and a half thousand respondents that had given us a nine or a 10 in in, in terms of NPS. So for anyone that doesn't know an NPS, it's a a kind of satisfaction survey. You can score between one and 10. If you score a nine or 10, you're a promoter. Um, one to six is a detractor and seven, eight is uh, passive. So we pulled out the two and a half thousand people that had given us a nine or 10 to say, I would recommend this business to my friends or family. They are super happy with the product. So they're purchasers. They're also happy purchasers. We ran that as a custom audience and lookalike. And that was uh, at the time, our most profitable um, audience we ran. And, and that's the power of creating a really good cohort to push into Facebook. One of the others we ran was um, actually using, um, I think it was Experian or something else data. 
where we actually enriched what we had from our customer database. We paid a consultant, um, you know, he bought some data, merged it into what we had. And again, we created a lookalike from that. And, and you know, the, the possibilities are quite endless. But what I would say on the flip side is that was back in, I don't know, 2017, 2018. The Facebook pixel and broad audiences are, I think, far more powerful now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, I heard something last week which really polarized it for me, which was when people look at look, lookalike audiences, they look at, you know, you need a custom audience, et cetera. Your pixel is a custom audience, right? Your pixel's yeah. creating custom audiences. So when you go to broad, that pixel's bringing data into your ad account and broad takes from that. So essentially, the broad campaigns are a form of a lookalike, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. Like when you yeah. get your mind through that, it makes sense as to why broad campaigns actually work so well. Yeah. Um, let's talk about custom audience size and account maturity. Um, so from a, if you're to create it, I know you just alluded to the fact that interest seemed to be, you know, much more effective than um, lookalikes. But if you're to create a lookalike, um, what audience size would you start from? Where's the starting point? For, for the quality. For a custom for a custom audience that you're about to build, um, like the MPS one that you used two thousand five hundred. What, what is the number threshold that um, you think the quality of lookalike data yeah. would start to make sense? So that depends on the quality of the data. So, for example, if I've got um, a thousand people that have added to cart, the quality of that's going to be lower than a hundred people that have purchased. So wow. that that's when it dictates it. Whoa, okay. okay. So like for example, if I if all I have is a hundred purchases, I'm gonna push that into my lookalike if that's all I got. And you know, I'm not scaling fast. The more the better. One thing that Facebook did say is after about ten thousand in your custom audience, it, it's a it's a it's a negative impact on or not negative, it's just like it plateaus in terms of the impact. Mm-hmm. Um I would say anywhere between five to five hundred to a thousand people in your custom audience is around the right number, the higher you can go beyond that, the better. So if you, you know, two and a half thousand, three thousand, four thousand, obviously. So, so do you think you're better off also creating lookalike audiences around like, say, say you're, you're, you're scaling quite significantly. Do you think you're, you're, um, you're, you're better off creating lookalike audiences around like 30 day purchase lookalikes, which, you know, will be in the lower thousands as against hitting that 10,000 threshold? Potentially, yes. And then that's something to test because, it's, it, if, if your product is seasonal, for example, and you're looking at six months worth of custom audience data, you're going to get all those kind of bounces of people that are spiking and maybe they only buy once a year versus others that mm-hmm. buy two or three. You can be a bit more creative and say, um, you know, I'm going to create a customer audience um, data from my back end, which is the last six months minus anyone that's bought on a discount or promotion. So there are ways to overcome that as well. Okay. Is accounts maturity a thing? It is, yeah. Okay. yeah. So the, okay. more, the more data your account's picked up, the more stable it will become because Facebook knows not only who your ideal user is, but if you think about the auction, the other thing they look at is what they call the estimated action rate. So the more conversions that go through your site, the faster it loads, the more confidence Facebook has that if I present your ad in the auction, you're going to give the user a great experience as well. So that all comes through account maturity as well. Okay, so account maturity is based on transactional data, not the age of your ad account. Um, I'd say both. 
Okay. Like, like the thing is, if you run your ad account for a year, but all you've done is like $5 a day page boosting, then that, that doesn't really count as much. It doesn't really count. Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about CBO, um, which is the campaign budget optimized setup. You've written a full ebook on it. Um, what is, would you, it's, it's still now an option from what I gather, from the latest yeah. updates I gather. They were meant to sort of mandate it, was it in February um, this year? And then things have changed. Um, how do you manage your accounts? Absolutely. So we um, became fans of CBO around middle of 2018. Okay. By the end of 2018, we were just convinced it's like the, the best thing Facebook had developed. So in 2019, all of our, our accounts were CBO. And obviously, Facebook then made this announcement to say, we're going to make it mandatory. And we're like, well, it doesn't affect us. We carried on. But then we were seeing a lot of questions from our community asking, how does CBO work? How are we able to make it work? In early 2019, we released a case study, the 21X case study of how we took a store and you know, scaled it up. And in that, we shared everything about the CBO. But we still were getting lots and lots of questions. So because Facebook were making it mandatory, what started off was around June 2019, I, start, I wanted to create like a one pager. This was like, this is how CBO works. That one pager became three, four, five. And then I thought, all right, maybe it could be a lead magnet. Maybe it'll be like a, something we give to the community. And I was actually in Canada at the time. We were on, the, on, we were on a cruise. So on the cruise, there's no Wi-Fi. Or there is Wi-Fi, but it's really poor. So I had no internet connection. So I just spent more time just writing out thoughts and stuff on the CBO. And then by the end of it, it was like 30, 40 pages long. And I said, this is too big to be um, a lead magnet. And, and I remember speaking to the team and kind of communicating back and forth. And we'll talk about, well, you know, should we just make it a $9 lead magnet? Yeah, but it's like 60 pages long now and it has more value and stuff. And I'll be honest, when it comes to pricing my own items, um, it's difficult for me to do that. So I don't, I don't make pricing decisions now. I let the team decide on that. Um, and, and that became more of a training course itself. Like it was never an intent to turn this into a training course. And I put some feelers out and I said, look, I'm putting this together. Would a training course in written format only be appealing? Because like most people expect video, right? And I sent it to a few people. I'm like, wow, this is like literally step-by-step everything you need to do. You should, you should publish this. So that's then what got published. And um, yeah, like the, the transformations it's had for people has been, that's the thing that's just been so satisfying from it is people have not only understood how to work with CBO, but how to structure their testing, their optimization and everything properly. And the way the whole BPM method has been set up, it's like CBO was made for it. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the key points that, you know, we have been focusing a lot more with the community is there's now a choice. You can use ABO or CBO. We're purely on CBO because everything we work with focuses on how that structure works to the extent that we are spending far less time in Ads Manager than before. I'll give you an example. Um, We use um, tools to automate and write write rules and things like that. Back in 2018, when we were mostly on uh, ABO, we would have a ton of rules to... Uh, at the ad set level, the ad level, making decisions and media buying and stuff to try and help us to scale up and profit. So all these rules were really quite complex. By the time we got to grips with CBO, if you look at our rules right now, they're, they're almost non-existent because we just let Facebook do its thing. And Facebook is far more intelligent once you've fed in the right ingredients for it. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's kind of, as we 
went through writing the CBO cookbook, it became more like, right, it is like baking a cake. If you put the right ingredients in and you follow the recipe, it just works. And, and that's where the idea came from to turn it into a cookbook. Um, I wanted to be a chef when I was younger. That's a separate story. But that's <laughs> kind of like, it became literally like when you when you buy a recipe book, for example, you buy a recipe book, but it doesn't come with videos, right? Yeah. You buy a book, it's literally here's the ingredients, here's the recipes, go and do it. But it works. Yeah. And that's yeah. where the concept of this came about. And, it, and again, it just works in the same way. And then way. you could put your own flavors to it and make, you know, that's you discoveries off the back of that. Uh, exactly. So does this, I know you were a huge um, proponent to reveal bots. Um, right. Where does that put tools like Revealbot? They they seem to have expanded their. I'm just on their website now. They, they now support um, you know automation for That's right. um, Snapchat and yeah. Google Ads. Um, so where where does this whole automation thing you know um, put Revealbot? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I, I think there's still a lot of um, uh, runway for companies like that, mm-hmm. but. I like if you look at our ad accounts, we're not using those automations as much because we let Facebook make those bigger decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook rules for many people is enough as well. Mm-hmm. For us, for example, where we use more of the rules is in our testing phase. So, for example, we test for impressions, not spend. So, I know a lot of the e commerce forums they say spend $5 if you get this metric, then cut it, or spend $50, get that metric. It doesn't work because one audience could be $10 CPM, $1, one audience could be $50 CPM. And there's a difference between how many people we can reach. So we base it on impressions. And so our testing process, once we plug in our ads and our um, audiences, we literally um, use rules to cut ads off and also rules to grade the performance as well. Mm-hmm. So what happens is it becomes like a machine. We push our ads and our audiences into the machine. The machine will run the ads it will pause the ads at the right point. It will also tell us which ads were successful and which were not. We then run a report and then decide which go into our kind of optimization or scaling campaign. What's your what's your impression threshold at the testing phase? Give or take two two and a half to three thousand impressions. So if we're going after purchase event, then more. And and the way I see it is the further away your event is from the click, the more impressions you need. So mm-hmm. if we're testing lead gen or registration then sometimes we get away with a thousand impressions or 1500 because it's literally click yeah. lander register. Whereas yeah. a typical e-com journey, there's so many bounces to get to purchase. Yeah. You need a lot more data to be uh, and, you know, scientifically stable. On uh, the are the testing phase, is it a full funnel or is it top of funnel? Um, at the testing phase, we're predominantly doing top of funnel. Okay. Okay. So um, what we, what we actually do is when we go down to mid and bottom of funnel, we rely less on, testing but more on our avatar and our um, understanding of the consumer to break down the barriers and we'll use kind of things like dynamic content optimized ads to do more kind of almost on the fly testing because the problem is your audiences are too small to do extensive testing whereas top of the funnel is kind of okay Okay. Okay. Um, let's talk about CBO. Just, just I have one or two more questions around CBO oh. and then we'll move, move on to dynamic creatives. Um, it is really um, the, the optimal number of ad sets. For those of you who are not really aware of CBO, it pretty much keeps ad spend at the campaign level, essentially. And, and then you could vary um, with lots of ad sets. So how many ad sets, Deepesh, are you, um, would you say is optimal 
in um, an ad that in, in a campaign that's, you know, spending, say, 500 a day or, you know, 1,000 a day? Do, do, do the number of ad sets vary on um, on the budget, on the campaign set budget? Or um, yeah. is, there, is there a pretty, you know, optimal set of ad sets that should, you know, reside in, in a campaign? Yeah, it definitely depends on the budget because the, the thing about CBO is because the budget is being managed at the campaign level, you have many variables, many more variables below it. For example, the number of ad sets, the segments within those ad sets, so the audiences you're targeting, the age, the demographic, and everything else that comes through it. So there's a lot more decision-making that needs to go into that campaign for it to decide where that money goes. For example, if, you've, if you're spending $50 a day and you have 10 ad sets, that $50 is not going far at all. Like, obviously, from your mind, you're thinking $5 per ad set, but it's actually worse than that because it's not just $5 per ad set. That ad set is targeting potentially multiple placements and ages and genders and devices. So now that $5 is being split by another 10, for example. So you're literally spending half a cent per element to test, which is nothing. So in that case, either your $50 a day campaign with 10 ad sets has to take like four weeks to fully test and give you relevant data, or you reduce the number of test elements down, which is you reduce the number of ad sets. So in your example, $500 to $1,000 a day, I think three to five ad sets is about the right number. As you go up to like, say, 5,000, 10,000, might expand up to seven or something like that. But even then, I'm not going too wide because the more variables you're adding, the more variability to your performance potentially as well. Interesting. Do you would you still do the same look like one percent, two percent, three percent to ten percent? And sometimes some people even do up to twenty percent in a CBO setup. Uh, no, we split our CBO campaigns by audience size. So generally, and this is just a generalization, we keep our one to three percent lookalikes in one campaign are four to seven in a separate and then eight to 10 in a separate. And then if we're doing 20, that'd be a separate. Because what we found is not only the audience size is different, but also the potential quality of the data or the audience is different as well. So we'll find better performance by grouping them together. So one to 3% are as close as, um, or, or a lot more closer than kind of going further out. The four and seven are fairly close and then they're kind of eight to 10. And, and when it comes to managing your budgets and also the t- style of ads that are running in your ad sets, we found better stability doing it that way. So we started off in the same way. We started to throw interests and lookalikes and many things into one campaign, but we found that spends were fluctuating across ad sets. It was really, it, it was really unstable. So we found stability by trying to manage the quality and the size of the audience better within a campaign. What about interest clusters? Um, so in your, in your more interest-based um, CBO campaigns, um, do you, would you pair up very similar or um, interests and, you know, demographic settings in, in your yeah. ad sets or um, do you, is it just varied? No, it's the same. So um, when we go through the testing phase, my preference is to uh, run interests separately or at least group them into like, um, like similar interests, for example. Then when it comes to like the prospecting or scaling stage, I prefer to group them together where the interest and the ads are, are the same. So, for example, if I'm testing different watch brands alongside different car brands and magazines and things like that, if the ads that people are responding to and those different interests are the same, then I'm happy to group it. But, for example, the people um, responding to the Bentley interest group ads, 
could be different to the ones that are responding to um, the, the Rolex interest, for example. Therefore, it doesn't make sense to group it because the, it could be that the angles needed and the type of consumer behind those interests are quite different as well. Interesting. Very, very interesting. What about the challenge of um, creatives? Um, what, you know, um, with actually, before I get into creatives, um, with, with CBO campaigns, um, are you, are brands spending more um, at the testing phase? Is, is because that's what it looks, sounds like from, from your perspective. Um, I, I don't know if I can speak for all brands, but certainly mm-hmm. the ones we work with, we're getting them to focus a lot more on avatars. So mm-hmm. even before you write your first ad or come up with your first creative, it's starting off with really thinking about the emotional hooks for your um, products or your service, and then also the functional. So the emotional hooks become the kind of angle for the ad. Then you bring in the functionality, whereas I think a lot of e-com um, brands think about it the other way around. So what are the functional benefits and how can I explain that to someone? But no one buys um, the, the headphones because of the chrome finish. That's like the, the icing on the cake. You mm. buy it because of the sound primarily yeah. and then the comfort and then things like that. And then convenience comes after that. So when I'm trying to think about um, kind of portraying that in the campaigns we're building, we start off with the avatar. So, right, you know, this person is... Um, uh, an entrepreneur and, you know, they, whatever, they run a podcast. So I'm thinking about you, for example, if you are my avatar, how do I cut an angle that makes sense for you? And that yeah. then becomes the ad and the creative that we push, push through the testing phase, both in the copy and the kind of creative format, uh, sort of the visuals as well, to try and find the right blend for you. So you might be in a lookalike or an interest-based um, audience. I want to know what resonates with you. And I'll kind of measure that, obviously, on performance of the data coming back. Amazing, amazing. Okay, now, um, the CBO, and not everybody is um, or uses dynamic creative, you know, um, ads, which which is another level of automation under a CBO. So you're, you're automating how Google opt- optimizes what audiences to target in, in the ad set level. And, um, you know, dynamic creative ads, What's your take on dynamic creative ads? Are you running dynamic creative ads? Um, and at what point of the funnel are you running dynamic creative ads? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of them, but we don't run them everywhere. So, for example, some people like to use it for testing. I don't because of our testing mechanism. So, for example, I want to pause ads at certain impression thresholds. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with a DCO right now because it's mm-hmm. just one ad with multiple variants. So I can't pause it out once I get significant results. Also, it's harder to share post IDs across multiple ads when you're doing a DCO versus... So there's many reasons I prefer not to use it for testing. However, further down the funnel is something I call the infinity retargeting strategy, which is when you have a small audience, let's say it's um, people that have visited the cart in the last three days or five days. Every three or five days, that audience is refreshing. So first of all, that audience doesn't really need to be touched because once you've got it up and operational and you've got the right time period, it doesn't need to change. If you combine that with DCO or even DPA, dynamic product ads, it gives you a level of being hands-off because once you've got your creatives on point and you know the barriers and you're able to convert and convince them, you never have to touch that again, really, because every, you know, let's say every five days, that audience is new. So there's no real thing of creative fatigue. You don't have to go and cycling ads. And also the one of the powerful things about DCO, dynamic um, uh, content optimization yeah. is 
Facebook knows that you as a user is more likely to look at videos or yeah. more likely to look at statics or this copy. And they, they, they already know that about you. So they'll serve you the right ad for you. And that's something which, um, you know, if you look at where Facebook is right now, there are more and more ways and more tools to automate a lot of the media buying than there ever has been. So running CBO with DPA, with DCO, with um, advanced matching and all these things, when you put those all, all things together and, and Facebook released something called Power uh, 5 last year, they are all built to take away the complexities of media buying for the majority so that you can spend time on your funnel, on your audience, yeah. on your ads, on your products, which is absolutely what everything the BPM method was built around. Yeah. And, and it's almost like Facebook is starting to realize that now. So, you know, that's making it more easier for us as a, a company running our own ad accounts because everything that was created in the BPM method has all, all just been enhanced. Brand driven. Because Brand it's driven. all just like Facebook's, uh, intelligence around machine learning is taking away all the um, decision making that we don't have yeah. to worry so much about. Yeah, 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 and um, yeah, it's almost like like they disrupted themselves. You know, their, their, their ad team disrupted themselves, kind Absolutely. of like what what Shopify has done um, in the e-commerce space. You know, back in the days with Magento, where you had to tweak, you had to have a development house in house to to actually you know build anything substantial. Yeah. And um, now everybody's with Shopify. Many brands are with 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 a SaaS you know based um, e-commerce platform. And they're just focusing on marketing and driving, you know, um, you know, traffic through to their sites because a lot of the technicalities have been sorted out. So it's yeah. just been nominal. This is this is super. Um, I'm taking too much of your time, so we're, we're going to to have to to wrap wrap um, things up, you know, very very soon. Um, in in regards to um, creatives, um, how are your best? You, you remember your 21x case study, which was phenomenal um, around CBO, and I think it was around a ski, um, a ski accessories company, um, if if I can remember. Um, they for them to achieve, you know, the I think it was like a 10 figure success for them to have achieved that, you know, kind of get those kind of results. How often did they? Um, at scale, at that kind of scale, how often did they manage their creatives, change their creatives? How often did they test their creatives? What, what did it look like on the back end of, of things from, from a, from a um, media buying standpoint? Yeah, so I, I think we scaled them up to about 20 million. And um, we probably spent the first six to eight weeks heavily testing creative. So we weren't massively profitable. Um, we didn't really know which ads would work, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, at that, at that kind of scale, I think we peaked at maybe 30K a day in ad spend. And at that level, we were having to um, rotate our creatives a bit more frequently. But at the same time, because of CBO and because of the structure and figuring things out, that's the first time I've spent five figures a day in ads where I wasn't stressed out. Like performance mm -hmm. was stable. Things were just working all the way through um, we started scaling on October and carried it all the way through way beyond Q4. So into January and February, mm. that's the first time I've done that. So in October to, 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 so in one quarter, these guys made 20 million. Pretty much, but over two quarters. Over um, two but quarters the thing is, okay. it's like, right. I'd done that before, but it's just, it was just so stressful because right. like before with ad set level budgets, if you imagine at those kind of spends, 20, 30 uh, a day, you've got multiple ad sets and now you have to manage budgets across all of them and optimization stuff. It was really stressful. But we, we'd had, with CBO, we had fewer 
budget decisions to make, right? Because we've got, um, I, I don't know, six, eight, 10 campaigns running yeah. that were running at the top of the funnel. And because all the inputs were done properly, uh, we did our testing process, the graduation framework with um, the, the business themselves had an amazing platform. It was Magento, it was fast, um, it was slick, et cetera. And, you know, they provided amazing creative. So like, you know, when I look at that case study, for example, I'd argue our job was easier because we were given great content. We so so what did their creative library look like? So I'll give you an example. Um, prior to, during our test phase, they actually took some skiers and spent a significant five-figure sum on shooting loads of video and uh, static content. So they, they had a creative team that would come up with different angles and shots and things like that. So by the time we hit the testing phase, we had a huge bank of creatives for each of the different products, for lifestyle and product and DR and brand and stuff like that. So I started off. Sorry, I need to stop being a track set. So you have have these guys, um, you know, creating the creative team, putting together creatives on the one hand, and then you have media buyers thinking about angles, you know, for the creatives. Um, So did the media buyers have... Um, just access to the raw creatives on the one hand, and then just um, and then they 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 um, they briefed the the video editors to to create videos around the narratives they were looking at around the, the angles they were looking at, or was was everything already prepared and then just handed over to to the media buyers? So, somewhere in between. So it wasn't like everything was perfect for us to run. But we would feed back and say, right, we need this kind of angle. We need this kind of crop or, um, the, you know, this clip of this video. We need this taken out. So it's a bit of both, definitely. Okay. okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Amazing. Okay. So creatives are like super important and for you to really scale a D2C brand. You, you, you need to have that engine and that team to, to put the creatives together. Fantastic. And the thing is, like as an agency, for example, we have uh, creatives that we um, supply for clients as well. And what we found is it's not the creatives themselves, it's the angles and the approach that the media buyers create Mm. and the the creative side of media buying that makes the biggest difference. So, for example, uh, we came up with some really interesting Instagram story ads uh, for one of our brands, and it was the concepts that made those ads so well. It wasn't like I, I want to differentiate the difference between having a good designer because I see a lot of people briefing designers and say, I want this amazing Instagram story ad or whatever it is. And the designer comes back and it's visually nice, but it doesn't work. It's because you need to think about it from the whole kind of BPM method is brand driven. So think about the avatar, think about the message that you want, the Stop sequence that you want and all that kind of stuff. That That's where the performance comes from. And then a designer visualizes it and gives you back an amazing Got it. Got it. Uh, So you, you essentially hand them over a, a plan. Exactly. Yeah, and with the avatar and the stories you want to tell in the avatar, exactly. and they, they translate it visually. Um, exactly. Okay, okay. Uh, so what's your take on like the ratio between um, static images and, and video where how would you sort of utilize them throughout the customer journey within the facebook ecosystem yes yeah, so i'm a i'm a, I'm a more of a fan of video because of the reason of remarketing right so even sometimes where i've got a static image i'll turn it into a 10 second video so at least i can remarket people that have engaged here's one little trick that i use for example for info products when i've got long form copy is to use a creative 
which is a video, but isn't engaging. And what I mean by that is I want them to play it, but I want to measure their engagement on my long form copy. So for example, if that um, video is 30 seconds in length and most people go to 10, 15 seconds, for example, I know generally they're dwelling on that copy for 10 to 15 seconds. So a lot of people talk about, should you write short copy? Should you write long copy? Measure it and measure the impact of um, the, the performance when you start to remarket to them. But you can also look at the engagement of that ad as well and get an idea of how long people are reading it for as well. Amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, I think, okay, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, um, this has got to do with campaign spend and scaling. Um, I know I've, I've heard you in the past talk about like hacks with um, with an Amex card. Um, I just wanted to use this opportunity to ask you around, um, you know, um, you know, spend and there's, there's the issue of scaling an account and then um, just due to your payment methods on there, um, things are screwed up. Um, yeah. You mentioned something about Amex at one time. I can't quite remember. Do you, do you, do you does it still, do, is it still relevant now? And um, how would you, when you're scaling an account, um, how do you sort out payments, you know, um, on that? Yeah, sure. Um, like we're going through this right now on our own accounts that you can only have right now a maximum of three ad accounts per Amex card. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that obviously makes it limiting for certain scenarios. So we're expanding our um, cards out. The other thing is thinking about the, if you want, is think about the rewards. So this is absolutely regional. So I know for the US, they have far better rewards than we do in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use Amex Platinum because uh, I do a lot of traveling. But uh, with COVID, it's quite not as ne- as kind of um, relevant. So we're we're now putting in place Amex Gold just for the, the other benefits it offers there. Um, I think we're quite limited in the UK in that respect, but I think it's just finding something that's going to work for your region. There's, there's some countries where there is no kind of concept of benefits for spends and stuff like that. Yeah. But what I would do is just make sure um, when you are scaling, like one of the things I see people trip up on is the frequency of those transactions that increase. So depending on what your billing threshold is, which is different to your account spend limit. So billing threshold is after this much spend, they'll pull it out of your card. If that goes up too fast, your payment provider could block your account for fraud because it just thinks that something's gone wrong. So you should alert your payment provider ahead of that and say, look, I'm looking to scale up. The amount of transactions are going to step up. Um, Make sure you've already got good history before that. Same applies for your payment uh, processor on your store, for example. So, even just emailing Stripe or PayPal and say, look, we've got a surge of sales that are coming up and I just want to let you know this is happening. Sometimes that's okay as well. I'll give you an example. Um, in 2018, I remember someone reached out and they said, you know, they're selling in their info products and they scaled it from literally zero to hundred K in a few days or a week and Stripe shut them down. Based on that, um, when we launched the playbook, I let Stripe know that we're launching this product. I don't know what's going to happen, but there might be a spike in sales. And they said, appreciate you letting us know. Since that point forward, I've actually had a really good relationship with Stripe in the UK. Um, And and they've been really good to us in return because that's what genuine businesses do. People who are in it for profit and don't care about customers and complain because their ad accounts are banned and their payment processes have been denying them, they're the people that payment providers don't want because they're in it for fast money. That's why these things are built up. So just speak, like just speak to PayPal, to Stripe, even Shopify or whoever you're working with and show that you're a genuine 
business that, that cares about their customer. And, you know, often over communication works better than no communication. Yeah. Stripe is a brilliant company. They, they, um, for one of my Stripe accounts, they, they moved it from the seven day payout to just three days, UK. That's pretty been, cool. It's been incredible. Okay. Um, Deepesh, you've given so much. I, you know, fully, fully appreciate this so that we, you know, I didn't anticipate you, you know, given so much time here and I'm sure this is going to be another blaster because your episode has a, it got a record in 2018 at the time. So, you know, I'm expecting the same this year in terms of downloads and listens. Um, I just have the lightning round to wrap things up. Um, I'm going to ask you about five, six questions. Um, and if you could answer them with a single sentence, um, it'd be brilliant. Sure. Ready when you are. Okay. Yep. All right. What advice would you give to yourself five years ago? Don't start an agency. It's really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> are you a morning person? Uh, no. What's your daily morning routine like? It's depending on how the kids start. Mine, mine is so variable. Yeah. What are the two things you can't live without? I think it would be my family and my laptop. Fantastic. Okay. Well, what book are you currently reading? Um, I was reading Built to Sell, I think it's called. Built to Sell. Built to Sell. Yeah, yeah. And if you could choose a single book or resource that's made the highest impact on how you view building a business and growth, which would it be? That's interesting. Um that's a real tough one. I would, I'd, I'd probably say one that inspired me was it's a book called bold. I think it's called think bold or just bold. And it's got loads of the examples of businesses that thought outside the box and became huge like Virgin and other companies as well. Okay. Okay. This is a curveball question or the final question for sure. Uh, what's been your best mistake to date? By that I mean a setback that's giving you the biggest feedback. Um, probably losing my job in 09 and it resulted in depression and it was a difficult, probably one of the most difficult times in my life, but without that, I wouldn't have gone down the entrepreneurial route. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure, um, you know, having you on the show, Deepesh, for people who want to check out the BPM method and people who want to follow you, um, please use this opportunity to, to let, you know, people know, um, how to, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess the launch pad is my website, depeshmandalia.com. Um, I lead a Facebook ads community. I'd like to think it's one of the most engaging. It's not the biggest. Um, and we genuinely care about the people there and kind of helping and teaching. Uh, bpmmethod.com is the full program. But essentially, like I want to bridge that gap between Facebook and advertisers to, to make sure that we're getting the best out of the platform. So that's, if I can help in any way along those lines and absolutely reach out. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Dupesh. Pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Hi guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. The interview I had with Dupesh. It's, if you're listening to, to it up to now, then there's no doubt you, you, you thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, um, to grab the offer, the discount to 2x e-commerce, um, you know, listeners, what you need to do is just um, go to the show notes or if you're watching this on YouTube, go to the description, to the link in the, 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 the link in the description and just get your 25% off. It's typically $2,000. You could check it on the normal website. It is now $1,600. I don't know how long it's going to last. It's maximum the next 30 days um, for the whole of July, it's, it's going to be running at the end of July. That's it. 
So, um, you know, jump on it. Um, it. It's a terrific, you know, opportunity. I think that given upgrades um, to existing BPM students, so you, you might, if you're already, you know, linked up to the BPM, you know, method um, training, then, you know, essentially you can upgrade. But um, if you're looking to get premium you know, um, premium level Facebook advertising for you or your team, your in your direct to consumer, you know, um, space, or you're running an agency and you're looking to up your game, you don't have a choice. Just grab this opportunity. Um, yeah, and um, I just wanted to to say something now. If um, you are watching this on on YouTube. Give this video a thumbs up, and if you are um, listening to this on iTunes, please leave us a five-star review. It just just pumps us up. It, it gives us a lot of opportunity for exposure. Until the next show, which I promise you, I promise you, is going to be even more. Yeah, it's going to blow up. It's even going to be more exciting. It's it's going to really, really blow your minds out. Um, again, Facebook advertising. Just stay tuned to this. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And um, yeah, I, I will see you guys next week on the next show. Bye-bye. Peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. We encourage you to connect with our community of 2X e-commerce listeners on our Facebook group, e-commerce growth accelerator mastermind. Just search for 2X e-commerce on Facebook to find it. Answer three questions and you'll be approved. Grab the show notes of this episode on our website, 2xecommerce.com. Finally, if you haven't already, give the show a review on your podcasting app. Catch you on the next show and keep growing.